0: Welcome to a special summer edition of Explore, a Canadian geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. As we prepare for our second season, we thought it'd be fun to put together some of the best moments from season one of Explore in our conversations with some of the world's greatest explorers. So strap yourself in and enjoy the best of Explore season one. I think right now we're enjoying
1: very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't
2: wait to get back and start telling you about it. We Simpson about June 10th with a fur brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each man by 10 voyageurs.
3: For us, in it means that in or
1: oral history is very strong. we little low over every yeah. inch of the country that it could be. We're
4: hoping that he would fire at oh, us.
0: I'm your host, David McGuff, and I'm coming to you from the Sir Christopher andache Reading Room at the headquarters of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society in Ottawa. Season one of Explore brought us many tales of thrills, chills, and near-misses that our explorers experienced as they traveled to some of the most remote places on Earth, and beyond. Roberta Bonder, the first female Canadian astronaut in space and honorary vice president of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, told us what it was like at that moment of liftoff when she was on board the space shuttle Discovery as it launched into orbit back in 1992.
3: Yeah, it certainly wasn't a very comfortable ride. Nobody told me that the last forty-five seconds you can't breathe, well, uh, because that's when you have three times your body weight on your chest, and if you have a hundred-pound suit on top. How did no one tell you that, though? Well, because they don't. They can't simulate it. Wow. Oh, the, so I, and I think they, they just forget. Yeah right so they
0: can handle it yeah well, so
3: well it's they're bigger things bigger fish to fry right I bet. so when we were the last 45 seconds before many engines cut off the commander was panting over the thing he was calling out the seconds bless his heart because he didn't have much, he didn't have any more fresh air than we did right and he's trying to breathe against this heavy acceleration force now all of us could pull 5g in a snap on a, in a centrifuge without passing out 7g a bit much for me but you go to 5G and you kind of know what to do to deal with it, but it's not for very long. 3G for 45 seconds is a long time when you're wearing a 100-pound suit and mm-hmm. getting it right through the chest. It's like trying to open up your rib cage and your lungs to take fresh air in when you've got like, I don't know, 300 pounds on top of you. Wow. But that's, you can't, I mean, <laughs> it's like hard to breathe.
0: Yeah, that sounds intense.
3: Mm-hmm. That's one of the interesting parts. The rest of it was very, very noisy, in spite of the helmet and Mm -hmm. the comm set. Very noisy. And I just said to myself, this is so far away from Star Trek and Flash Gordon. This is like the most rudimentary tin can possible.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's very true about it. It really was. was,
3: It's being inside a Roman candle, being inside an explosive device.
0: Inuit actor, athlete, and educator Johnny Isiluk is the newest RCGS Explorer-in-Residence, He told us about a close call he had with a polar bear in Nunavut.
5: When I was 12 years old, a polar bear grabbed my foot, let go, and walked away. While I was sleeping, we were 40 miles north of home in the summer, hunting, fishing, all that stuff for a few days. And early in the morning, a polar bear grabbed me and... Like my dad and my brother-in-law couldn't shoot through the tent because it was an 11-foot polar bear. If you injure it, it's going to be one That's pissed mm, off bear. Yeah. you got to make sure you know where you're going to shoot. Right. So it was just a shadow. Yeah. So they could just watch what it was doing. the Big paw against the tent. And you wake up to this? I didn't wake up at all. Wow. I'm an early morning person. I wake up between 5 and 7 every day since I was a kid. And that day, I woke up late, late in the afternoon for some reason. Like it was very odd, and I was like exhausted when I woke up. Something, polar bear gave me something.
0: Cape diver and RCGS explorer in residence Jill Heinerth recounted the time she almost got stuck deep inside an Antarctic iceberg.
1: I've been inside an iceberg in Antarctica when the current was so strong that we were having difficulty getting out from that cave environment.
0: So you're in a cave well below the iceberg.
1: Yeah, I'm in a cave literally encased in ice, and the current is so strong I can't swim against it. And my one-hour dive turns into a three-hour dive.
0: (laughs) And how do you get out?
1: Uh, Well, step by step, And, and that's generally how I tell people to look at big problems in life or how to look at survival. It can be all too great to figure out how you're going to solve the big, big problem. But you know what the next best step is. So if you're making one inch of progress at a time, it's progress. And you have to focus on the one inch of progress at a time rather than I might not make it.
0: So Mm -hmm. you
1: got out, obviously. Yeah. Well, interestingly, I got out by copying fish. (laughs) So first of all, I got to a point where I could get contact with the actual seafloor and dive my hand into the substrate to pull myself forward. But I was still 130 feet deep on the seafloor when I got to a place that there was a way that I could go up towards the surface. But I had to go up towards the surface in a series of controlled steps that we call decompression to allow my body to readjust to the lower pressures as I moved up. And I had noticed that these little fish about the size of my thumb, had burrowed holes inside this cliff of ice and that that's where they lived. When the current was strong, they would hide in these little holes. So I thought, aha, those are like (laughs) handholds. And I was diving my finger into their homes, evicting the fish and using those little finger holds as a way to pull myself up this sheer wall of ice when the current was pulling me back downward
0: Wow. And, yeah, that, that and it worked. Little fish.
1: Yeah, it worked.
0: George Karunas is also an RCGS explorer in residence and a world-famous storm chaser who has had more than his fair share of close calls.
2: I've had instances where I've had lightning strikes so close that I can feel the heat on my face. Wow. And that's, you know, frightening for a millisecond, right? And you realize you're okay, and then it's done. Your heart rate goes back down, and you're good might need to change your underwear. Yeah, yeah. Um, Is the air crackling? What's that like then? Like, oh, it's unbelievable. Because there's so much energy. There's so much energy. We're talking 100 million volts, a bolt of lightning, maybe only as thick as your finger, but yeah. can burn five times hotter than the surface of the sun for a few milliseconds, and that's it, right? Sometimes you'll get the hair on the back of your arm stand up before a lightning strike hits, and that's, that's an indication that you're in a very bad place. Uh, but just the, the sound is so unbelievable when it's that close. It's just this, and it just reverberates around and oh, it hits you in the chest. The shockwave hits you in the chest.
0: Ray Zahab is an ultramarathoner, extreme adventurer, and RCGS explorer in residence. One of his close calls came in a winter expedition on foot across northern Labrador.
6: Yeah, I broke through a river up in Sacklick Fjord in mm. the middle of February. I um, literally almost died. Stefano was with me. I was scouting ahead because I had the most experience. Right. And uh, it was a really weird weather scenario. That yeah. winter, they were having warm, then cold, warm, then cold. Tons of snow in a place that there shouldn't have been tons of snow. Should have been wind blowing and much colder. We were uh, going up through a very narrow canyon. And when we were near the top and I was scouting ahead, I broke through this ice. I was being pulled under the water because it was uphill being pulled under the water and i have my snowshoes on with the crampons and everything right and because the snow would go from meters deep to wind blowing i but i had everything undone because i travel on river systems with my boots undone on purpose in case something ever happened i can get my boots off with my snowshoes and um i almost almost did not get out of that hole alive i was just seconds away he could not get to me because all the it was i broke through overflow and then broke through ice underneath the overflow and with the current that was happening and it was just a bad scenario What's- it was completely unpredictable i, I was panicking and i pulled my leg through the water tried to get my snowshoes off and in doing so hyper extended my right leg and it hooked the side of the hole it came out it was kind of like on a sideways push and i was able to push myself up enough that with momentum and panic and adrenaline i was able to roll out of the hole from there and rolled into the snow And got as much snow on myself as I could to absorb as much of the moisture. I was up to my neck in this water, right? Stefano couldn't get to me because the ice would have collapsed. So I made my way to him. I had all my gear, my emergency gear. Canada Goose had made me these custom down pants that I'd carried with me on expeditions forever in case something like this ever happened. Threw those things on. They're good to minus 70. Threw them on. My boots, though, were frozen. Blocks of ice. Right. So uh, I would just smash the ice out of them each day. Um, and, but my feet were frozen. So I was you have hypothermic, hypothermic. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, sure. Two days, yeah. couldn't go to the bathroom, body not functioning.
0: Adam Schultz, our CGS explorer in residence, told us about a run in he had with a very large animal on the tundra on a recent solo Arctic expedition.
7: So I just unzipped my screen door like five inches, and there's a mock staring right at the opening in my screen door. So I zipped it right back up. That was my most terrifying moment. I mean, he was snorting, he was pawing the ground, he was in an attack mode. Right. For people who haven't seen it,
0: they've got a good set of pointy horns on them.
7: Yeah, they have massive curved horns that can be up to three feet long or something like that. And uh, they charge each other. I've seen the males charge each other and they ram heads. So that was a little bit of a sweaty palm moment that lasted about 10 minutes with him outside my tent, walking around it, snorting and bellowing and doing all this stuff. And then...
0: So, I mean, you're just sitting there hoping and waiting. Is there a way to protect yourself in this moment?
7: Well, I, wasn't, I definitely wasn't going to try to use a bear banger on an animal that close. I mean, yeah. he was as likely to charge into my tent as charge away. And I didn't right. want to use bear spray on him either. So right. I just kind of looked around inside my tent all alone. I was like, well, what can I do? What can I do? And then I saw my pillow. Right. And my pillow is actually my life jacket, right. which I double up as a pillow. And I was like, oh, this will help. So I grabbed my life jacket and I zipped it up. And I'm like, now nah, I right. at least I have padding on my body. So I'm protected from this half ton creature.
0: Not quite. Kevlar, but it's it's something, I guess. Well,
7: the rational side of my brain was saying, this is completely idiotic. This uh, little padding will do absolutely nothing if a mock socks tramples you. I was listening to the non-rational side of my brain, which was like, it's psychological comfort to have padding of some kind. But I just made myself as small as possible because I was like, when he charges into my tent, hopefully I can just jump to the one side and miss his horn or his hoofs. And he went around to the other side of my tent and then finally he galloped off down the hill. So after that, whatever reason, I packed up my canoe and just paddled away as far as I could go.
0: (laughs) Not surprisingly, given the stories you've just heard, one of the big themes that kept coming up over and over in our first season was how to manage fear, especially in a crisis situation. We start again with astronaut Roberta Bonder. How do you manage fear in situations like that? And how much were you aware of being afraid when you're up there?
3: My true belief is that's where the training comes in. People who are untrained are the ones that get afraid. Uh, people who are not focused and discipline and get distracted by things that are not within their training it becomes very difficult. So we think about any kind of time we do training is to try to take that and apply it to everything we do so that's why we talk about critical thinking as being the skill set that's really so important because mm-hmm. you can then apply it across the board for a number of different things and that Plus the fact that if you're in science, you know about some answers, and you know that some of the answers are not known, and it really diminishes the fear factor. I think being able to not control one's environment is something one has to never be comfortable with for most people. Right. But you have to be comfortable in knowing what you can do about it. And you start thinking about a space shuttle or a spacecraft or whatever, if you start always thinking that it could go down and I can't do anything about it, then if something else happens that you can do something about, you'd get distracted right. because you think, well, mate it's going to go down anyway.
0: Right. So it's not about the absence of fear, but it's just managing that. It's, fear.
3: well, absolutely. It's risk management. It's always about risk management and what your level of risk tolerance is.
2: Storm chaser, George Karunas. Fear and I have a very close personal relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spent a lot of time being afraid, but there's a big difference between fear and panic. Right? Panic is the loss of control because fear has overwhelmed you for whatever reason. Being afraid to do something is a great motivator and it's a really good way to, to sharpen yourself. If you're not afraid at least a little bit, then you're not doing something that's challenging. And so I use it as a tool. When I get afraid, it, it's it's time for me to take action. So to double check my equipment or, or check in with my team or to change my strategy in some way. And... Being afraid is something that I, I love to do. Um, I like to challenge myself by doing new things, bigger and better, you know? And that's become uh, a, a companion of mine, fear has become. Yeah. yeah. I don't try to avoid it. I try to, not, not really manage it, but just but have a relationship with it.
0: So what's the trick to avoiding flipping from fear to
2: panic? Um, study, experience, team, technology, the better of those four things that you have, the less likely you are to flip to panic, especially experience and training. Right. Those two things are, are, are so important, tantamount when it comes to managing fear in extreme situations, for sure. The more you've done something, the more familiar you are with it, the less likely you are to be freaked out by it. But at the same time, you can become complacent. So you always have to keep checking in with yourself or with your other teammates to make sure that you're not being arrogant, because arrogance will also get you killed.
0: Cave diver,
1: Jill Heinearth. I know that when something really, really horrible happens, when I'm in that moment, I go, whoa, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get home, and I'm very scared. The first thing that I have to do is quiet my mind and tell myself that my emotions won't serve me well right now. Uh, The emotions only make you want to breathe fast and your heartbeat go faster and then you use up your tank of gas faster and that's not going to work for me. (laughs) And I've learned to be very disciplined and able to turn it off because one has to be able to take very small steps towards ultimate victory, success, survival, uh, in order to solve big problems. And then afterwards, you can cry. (laughs) Inuit athlete, actor, and educator, Johnny Isilak.
5: A lot of my work is inspiring youth. And so part of facing my fears are to show kids or people that no matter what, You can go through anything, learn anything. Scary as hell, but it's doable. Anything's doable. I'm terrified of heights. Let's use that as an example. I'm petrified of heights. I jumped out of an airplane skydiving, and it was gut-wrenching. It was the most terrifying thing I ever did, right? Jumping out of an airplane, and I did it on my own. I didn't have anybody strapped on me. Uh because if I'm gonna die skydiving I'm gonna do it in my terms. It took a lot for me to do it, mm-hmm. and that comes from my parents, my ancestors, people that watch over me, and I wholeheartedly believe my grandmother, my mother, my father, my grandfather are watching over me, you know, and that's giving yeah. you the strength to do what you're doing now, do you yeah, think? yeah, that's part of my faith, yeah. In time, like that's what I started to understand. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more I understand it, the easier it gets. Solo Arctic explorer
0: and author, Adam Schultz.
7: On any journey I do, and I do multiple journeys all throughout the year, mm. solo and bear territory, usually the first week you're hypersensitive to any noise outside your tent, and right. you're always kind of looking over your shoulder. You have this feeling, you know, is someone following me or if I'm being watched, and your bear spray is always on your belt or nearby. But at least in my experience, after a few weeks, you just kind of adjust to your surroundings and that becomes your new normal. And then I usually sleep better in the wilderness than I do at home. Uh, I sleep soundly all through the night. And you know, as I was saying with the muck socks, you just kind of become accustomed to them or the bears right. and you don't really worry about it. Right. You know, usually on my first journey, if I find like a grizzly track outside my tent, that kind of, you really sit up. But then after a month or so of that, it just becomes part of your world. I guess the best analogy I could use is if you're not from a big city like I'm from a small town you go into a big city like Toronto and you're like oh you know how do people walk these streets or down these alleys at night when i hear on the news all these murders and bad things happening right people who live there.
0: Right. You find a way to rationalize. they like, it's one
7: on. in a million. Like yeah. they don't let that scare them. Right. And you just kind of get used to it. Um, we were talking about Ottawa and how I used to commute on Fowlfield Road there. And yeah. I honestly think that Canadians with long commutes on icy winter roads are in more danger than I am on any of my canoe journeys. I mean, I've done over 80 different canoe journeys in the wilderness. I've never had any injury worth mentioning and I've never needed search and rescue. To right. me, I'm not doing anything scary. I'm just doing what I love.
0: Another one of the big themes in season one was what exactly it means to be an explorer now in the 21st century. We start with storm chaser George Karunas. You are an explorer in residence for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, and here we are in the 21st century. A lot of exploration has already happened in our history. Yes. What does it mean to be an explorer now? Well,
2: I would say that there's still plenty to explore. Uh, For me, personally, my genre of exploration is to travel the world, document the most extreme places and share what I've seen with as many people as possible. So I explore these moments in time at certain places where there are extreme natural forces. So the the exact spot where the tornado is touching down, the exact spot where the hurricane is making landfall, the point where that volcano is erupting, where that avalanche is coming down the mountain. And it's those moments in time that I like to document to show people how powerful mother nature is I use it to, for me to connect with nature myself personally and to show people how bad bad can be, to hopefully um, influence them to evacuate the next time something bad happens, to heed the warnings, but also to inspire people to get outside. It's been proven that going out in nature, just going to the park will relieve stress and depression. Right. So get out there. Yeah. You know, There's so much to see. You don't have to do the crazy stuff that I do but just get out there and and enjoy nature and do something you've never done before. Do something that's going to scare you a little bit, right? Astronaut Roberta Bonder.
3: I think the one thing that's always important is what makes a person want to explore, what makes an explorer an explorer, what are the kinds of things that a person thinks they can achieve? Is it for personal goal? Is it for humanity at large? Is it a combination? I think the idea of being able to somehow experience something in a different way for one's own personal life, whether it doesn't matter if you're 80 or you're 8 or you're 18. The idea of trying to do something different, trying to learn from something is very important. It's not trying to always be at a dinner table beside the same person or beside someone who has the same interests, but rather be with someone who can help you enter a new world of thought. And that's what explorers and pioneers do. They enter a new way to try to look at life and approach life and bring new things that either give us joy or give us a new direction to help us make the lives of others better.
1: Cave diver, Jill Heinert. We're all explorers. We were explorers when we were kids, putting everything in our mouth. Mm. <laughs> you know? mm. Somehow the constraints of society beat that out of us at some point. And I think if we can all be a little more childlike, embrace that exploration, that right. it will serve us well.
0: Charlotte Gray is a best-selling author, historian, and an RCGS fellow.
4: Exploration to me is still an endeavor of understanding our world. Um, I think often for many people it's about self-exploration, but that's not what it is for me. It's about trying to understand the universe and trying to understand the place of mankind in this extraordinary infinity.
0: James Raffin is an RCGS fellow, author, educator, and Canadian canoeing icon. The
8: days of geographic exploration are not over, but exploration takes all kinds of forms. It's an embracing, I think, of uh, risk, and risk is uncertainty. At some level, though, David, I'm, for some reason, for better or for worse, I mean, I'm a fellow of the Explorers Club, which is... uh, Yeah, I don't know. At some level, I kind of cringe at the term.
0: Yeah, but I think what you're saying, too, is we all have the ability to explore.
8: Yeah, we do. You don't have to really leave home to do that. I mean, the risk comes in many forms, um, social, cultural, psychological risk. But the real essence of exploration, I think you need to be able to accept that when you go to the edge of what you know, away from the fat, comfortable, middle It comes sometimes with pain, but that's just part of embracing a place where new insight and new learning dwell.
0: Our Season 1 guests all have a keen sense of the state of the world around us. Here are some of their views on one very important subject, climate change. We start with storm chaser George
2: Karunas. Uh, We are now just recently above 415 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is a place that we have never experienced as a species. We are in uncharted territory. And I'm very concerned that we're gonna hit the tipping point where we can no longer do anything about it. In particular, I'm worried about the oceans. I'm worried about the temperature of the oceans and how that's affecting ecosystems, which then become this global problem because everything stems back to the ocean. I'm worried about permafrost melting in Canada, in Siberia, releasing methane gas, which is also a greenhouse gas. So there are huge concerns there. And I'm seeing these weather events that are used to be one in 100-year events becoming one in 10-year events. The one in five-year events are now one in once-a-year events, especially at the ends of the spectrum, the droughts and fires and the floods. So now as more evidence is coming in, we're just getting more and more reinforcement of what we already know is that our weather patterns are being disrupted heavily, and we're causing it, and we know how to stop it. So I'm hopeful for the future. The classrooms that I visit are very well educated on what's going on in terms of climate change. The kids are very motivated about making a difference, about making the world a better place. And the reality is there's no planet B. We have no
9: other choice.
0: Alana Mitchell is a science writer, RCGS fellow, and best-selling author of Seasick, The Global Ocean in Crisis.
9: As we put carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere, as we burn fossil fuels, the ocean is absorbing something like 80% of the extra heat that is captured by all this carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So It's, it's getting warmer. It's, it's The temperature is, is warming. There's also a chemical reaction between the water and the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that creates carbonic acid so the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere actually reacts chemically with the water to make carbonic acid which floods the ocean with acid and changes its pH so the ocean is becoming more sour and it's also becoming breathless so parts are now devoid of oxygen and that's just a big problem when you're thinking about the ocean as the life support system of the planet.
0: To what degree is it the life support system of the planet? Um,
9: Well the way one scientist put it to me is that if everything on land were to die tomorrow everything in the ocean would be fine. But if everything in the ocean were to die tomorrow, everything on land would die too.
0: Well, why?
9: why? Well, because it's the, what they call the biogeochemical pump of the planet. So it is, it is a major part of the carbon cycle of the planet, the oxygen cycle of the planet, the nitrogen system. All of these systems are controlled by what goes on in the ocean.
0: James Raffin shared his observations on the impact of climate change on the low-lying Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean.
8: There's a kind of a a here and now to the perspective of people at the edge of civilization, including the Marshall Islands, where they're still living, fishing. You talk to the people on the ground, they'll tell you that things are different today than they were in their grandparents' time. But this is, again, it's different physically, uh, the water's higher, you know, even that, the the bigger picture of climate change and the rhetoric, the words, the policy directives that come out of that, I didn't hear about any of that. People still trying to feed their kids. Yeah, <laughs> They're trying to educate their kids. They're trying to make life in uh, very trying circumstances. And in many respects, just solving the problems of the day in the most spectacularly positive way. It really does give me hope
4: mm-hmm. that
8: for all the hand-wringing that we do When we project forward from the circumstances that we've created now, there's something to be said for people who spend an equal amount of energy attending to the here and now. And uh, there's a lesson there, I think.
0: And finally, we're going to leave you with some stories and observations about the natural beauty of Canada and wilderness areas around the world. We start with Andrew Prossen, polar travel pioneer, CEO of One Ocean Expeditions, and RCGS Fellow. He's been leading cruises to the Antarctic and Arctic for decades. And along the way, he's developed some pretty good animal impressions.
10: Imagine going to a place on Earth in this day and age where there is zero evidence of humanity, mm-hmm. right? of civilization. Of, uh, you know, we travel hundreds of miles of coast and there's nothing but right. nature. Do you remember the feeling you had when you built the snow fort or you made a tunnel in the mm. snow as a kid yeah. and the silence really was yeah. deafening? Yeah. You could hear the silence. Yeah. That's what standing in Antarctica is like. Yeah. Because of all that ice and snow, it absorbs all but the sounds closest to you, right? Or all, all but certain sounds, right? So when you hear a whale, you know, blowing, you hear it, yeah. right? especially like you're walking out on deck at night and it's dark and you just hear that. Or the penguins ah, ah, You know, you can hear them from a long way away sometimes Miles if there's away, no yeah, wind, right? Yeah, yeah. The silence, the solitude, the power of nature, it's a true spectacle that everybody should see. Right. You sit on the beaches of South Georgia with a right. hundred thousand king penguins and each one of them is about a meter tall, yeah. just short of a meter and making all the ah, ah, that's the and then the elephant seals are uh, 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 uh. They're ten thousand pounds each when they rear up on their bellies, and you've yeah, seen, seen Mr. Attenborough, yeah, again, yeah. and and they're taller than you. Wow! And they're like a runaway train when they start moving, so you got to right. get out of the way. And but if you sit, the king penguins, they just fill in around you. Next thing you know, you're in and amongst tens of thousands, a hundred thousand birds, right? Right. And they don't care if you're there at all. Cave diver Jill Heinert.
1: I have cave dive beneath golf courses, a bowling alley, homes. Um, my favorite is underneath the salad bar of a Sunny's barbecue restaurant, while a surface tracking team was like walking in between the tables in a restaurant, yelling "cave survey coming through" and planting a orange flag in a salad bar potato salad. I'm you know 240 feet beneath them in a cave swimming.
0: Wow. Yeah. And giving a bunch of Sunny's customers something to talk about it.
1: And they still do. Like 15 years later when you go to that restaurant, <laughs> they'll be like, so there's a cave under here. That's <laughs>
0: fantastic, which yeah. no one would have known about, right? No one would have known
1: about it. Yeah.
0: yeah. When you're down there, what are you seeing? Because people just think pitch mm-hmm. black, but obviously you have lights and you... Have,
1: yeah. yeah, we have to take lights. There's yeah. no no illumination from the surface whatsoever. And caves around the world are all,
4: yeah.
1: all different um, in... Parts of the world where caves were formed above sea level, when the ocean levels were lower, the caves are filled with stalactites and stalagmites. So crystalline draperies of beautiful rock hanging from the ceiling and standing up like spires of piles of candle wax piled up from the floor. So beautiful galleries that when you illuminate them with your light, they, they glow orange and yellow and white. And in other places, the tunnels are barren of those kinds of decorations because the caves were formed beneath the surface, carved by water. In those places, the water sculpts the wall as if it's carved out little scallop chunks from the limestone over over time. And those caves feel very old. And then volcanic lava tubes where the volcano spews lava down a mountainside and then that lava meets the water and the outside of the flow is immediately cooled by the water, but the interior of lava continues to flow like water through a fire hose for a period of time before it's cooled enough to solidify. So those caves are formed in a matter of an instant or days or weeks. So some caves feel old and they tell a history of, like a time capsule and some are very young. James Raffin,
0: Canadian canoeing icon.
8: If you want to learn about this country, this nation of rivers, this river of nations called Canada, you need to have facility in a a canoe. Mm -hmm. And a canoe will teach you about the country in uh, a series of layers. It was made of materials with design that comes from the first peoples of the country. It shows regional differences in how it's constructed from east to west to north. Its expression in the north, the kayak, the related vessel, or the umiak, or some of the big dugouts in the west coast, is this, this kind of incredible porthole into uh, the essence
0: of a nation. Solo Arctic explorer and author, Adam Schultz
7: the diversity of different landscapes in the Canadian Arctic is amazing. There are right. parts that always surprise me. There was parts where you would think I was in the Sahara, nothing but sandy deserts as far as the eye could see.
0: Yeah, fascinating.
7: Uh, yeah, that was what was a, that? Uh, that would be in the, along the Hanbury River, which is kind of in the central Arctic near the so Nunavut,
0: Nunavut, Northwest
7: Territories yeah. boundary line. Yeah. And basically, again, as far as I know, just from looking at it myself, it just looks like it's such a windy area, right? You can have right. gale force winds yeah. hundreds of miles an hour. Uh, that powerful, relentless wind strips away the thin soil and it exposes the sand underneath. And you can see it actually if you just go on Google Earth and you look at satellite images, you'll see sandy barrens that cover four kilometers or more.
0: So actual dunes and stuff.
7: Like sand that. dunes, sand hills, and just white sand as far as the eye can see.
0: Alana Mitchell is a science writer, RCGS fellow, and best-selling author of Seasick.
9: You know, I really have been to a lot of parts of the world. Um, but. It's the prairie that I find the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful landscape, the the thing that is endlessly. Oh, it's just a, it's a spiritual place for me. Mm. It's something about having a different sense of yourself in relation to the horizon. Often, when I'm on the prairies, you, you know, there's not much mediation between. There's not much human mediation between the sky and the, and the land, and. Um, it's not like here in Toronto, for example, where everything's built, you can look around you. And and I love that too, but it's, it's built up, it's human made. And on the prairies, it's, it's often, you, you just have a different sense of yourself and your scale when you're on the prairies.
0: Charlotte Gray, author, historian, and an RCGS fellow.
4: When I wrote about the Yukon gold rush, I lived in Dawson city for three months at the wonderful writer's retreat where Pierre Burton grew up, uh, and it's now administered by the Writers' Trust. Um, Landscape became almost another character in my book as I realized just how menacingly beautiful it was. The extraordinary sunsets, the giddy experience of The Longest Night. You can't ever write true biography or history without experiencing the landscape and seeing how it must have shaped people's behavior.
0: Inuit athlete, actor, and educator, Johnny Isilak.
5: To calm myself, I just go home. Anywhere in the Arctic. Anywhere. Yeah. yeah. I go out my back door. Mm-hmm. I'm in nature. Yeah. 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 And it's just land. That's where you collect yourself, spiritually. And, you know, when I'm out land... My thoughts clear up, like everything I forgot to think about comes out. It is alive in you if you allow it.
0: And that's it for this Best of Season 1 of Explore. Thanks so much for listening. And please keep an eye on Canadian Geographic's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook feeds for news about our upcoming season this fall. More fascinating conversations with the world's greatest explorers. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us, give us a rating, and tell others about us on social media. I'm your host, David McGuffin, looking forward to being with you again here on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast brought to you by One Ocean Expeditions. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth
2: and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people you about right Simpson about June 10th with a fur brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats. Each man by 10 Voyager.
1: For us Indus it means that Indian oral history
4: is very strong. Every little law over every inch of the country that could be, we're hoping that he would fire at it. I guess 160 rides or so. there are
0: shrimp, fish swimming around
2: outside. It's it just fabulous here. Well, other first for Canada. <laughs>
0: And this podcast would not be possible without the support of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. For 90 years, the RCGS has been dedicated to making Canada better known to Canadians in the world through print and digital media under the Canadian Geographic brand. It also funds expeditions, research, public events, the creation of educational materials, and much, much more. You can support the great work of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society by making a tax-deductible donation today at rcgs.org forward slash donate.